Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Good morning. Will you please turn with me to Psalm 2? Our scripture meeting this morning, as well as our text for our sermon, is Psalm 2. Let us hear reverently the word of our God. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So far we read God's word in Psalm 2. Let us unite our hearts in a prayer for God's blessing upon his word. Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit and also opened by the Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we will know and understand the wonderful message of salvation in Jesus Christ, and know that he is our king, and therefore we confess him as our Lord, as well as our Savior, praying, O God, that you will enable us to lead our lives and to submit to him in all things, knowing that his will as the ruler of the universe is perfect. And we pray for the nations of the earth, that you will make the kings wise and enable them to serve the Lord with fear, and to kiss the Son, to bow before him and rejoice and love him because of his goodness, and then to put their trust in him. How we thank you, O Heavenly Father, that in the midst of this world, where there is indeed the rule of Christ with a rod of iron over the nations, there is also the grace of God, the amazing grace which calls the nations unto salvation, from the kings to the lowest person in the, in the community, to find their help and their salvation and their wisdom and their righteousness in Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray these things in his name, who is indeed Christ our King. Amen. Please be seated. Dear brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we focus on the death of Christ for our sins. His broken body and shed blood are the human part of his suffering for us, And we remember and participate spiritually in his sacrifice through faith as we participate in the supper. At the same time, those who participate in the supper without exercising true faith, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 29, quote, eat and drink judgment to themselves. This character of the Lord's Supper as a means of judgment is a very important part of Christ's work. And this is dividing the world into believers and unbelievers. John the baptizer describes Christ as a great all-time thrashing machine. He says, one coming after me whose shoes I am not worthy to untie uh, will 
thoroughly purge his floor. And he says, whose winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his granary, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. How this happens to the world and what it means is carefully laid out here in the second psalm and several other messianic psalms, 45 and 110 in particular, while Christ the suffering servant is spoken of in Psalm 22. Now we need to understand as we look at Psalm 2 that Psalms 1 and 2 together form an inspired introduction to the book of Psalms, which are then, first of all, about the life of a faithful believer in a wicked world. It tells us to turn away from the ways of the wicked and unto the law of God. But the second psalm is about how Christ deals with the wicked world. And in this teaching, Christ the King is God's answer to the wicked world, both in destroying the nations that rule against, that uh, fight against him, as uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he must rule until all his enemies are put under his feet, and at the same time calling the people of the world uh, to kiss the sun, to find their salvation and their hope in Jesus Christ. This is so typical of the Bible where it warns uh, those who fight against God of the, not only the sinfulness, but the great danger they are in. And at the same time, underlying that is the wonderful gospel of amazing grace for those who turn to Christ, not in anger and uh, disobedience, but in love and faith. First of all, we need to understand what the psalmist says here. David writes this psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot of vain thing? The kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, mean against his Christ. It's very interesting that the history of the world is in part the rebellion of the nations against the Lord and against his Christ. As we look at Western Europe and America today, and we see that what's happening to us is a a turning away from what has been a Christian foundation. The Protestant Reformation uh, was like the flood. It was a great change in what was happening in the world, so that there was a tremendous outpouring of the gospel and of the Holy Spirit to bring literally millions of people into the kingdom of God and under the sway that is under the rulership of Christ. And that's a fantastic thing to contemplate in the history of the world because it is the foundation for our nation as well. And we see that in the Declaration of Independence and other papers of the early Americans who said that all men are created equal. We get our rights not from the government, not from each other, but from God. And therefore, they cannot be taken away. Well, in the world there has always been, and unfortunately today we see that rising also in our country, as a result of the so-called Enlightenment philosophy, the philosophy that makes man the measure of all things. Man doesn't need God to decide right and wrong. Man doesn't need God to save him because, of course, he's not lost. He's the product of some evolutionary process. Well, all of those lies, of course, have become a stock and trade in the educational and, and unfortunately, the, the legal system of the United States. Well, this is not a new thing. This is an old thing. Solomon already says in Proverbs 21, verse 30, there is no wisdom or understanding, or counsel against the Lord. This is a foolish thing. To fight against God will always lead to destruction. It will not lead to anything good. 
And so we ought not to be surprised at the results of some of the things that are going on around the world and in our own country. God's answer to that, first of all, is to laugh. That's absolutely foolish to fight against God. That's not going to happen. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands apart. Let us not be subject to the law of God. Let us cast away the cords that bind us to God. And unfortunately, we have a Supreme Court and have had several presidents that are openly or deceitfully against Christ and Christianity. And so the leadership of the country has been a great problem in the United States. And the, and the, and the, and the purpose here on the part of the unbeliever is to seek liberty from God's benevolent laws. That's what they want to do, seek liberty from God's benevolent laws. And this reflects something in Psalm 1. Where the psalmist writes again, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. That's the antidote to a meaningless and a frustrating life. It's the law of God. We need to understand that the law of God is good for us. It's not bad for us not to steal or lie or commit adultery. It's good for us. It gives us a foundation for a decent life in which we can serve God and receive the blessings of God. So the best words ever written in any language are at the end of Psalm 23. God's will, uh, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Everything that people are looking for, goodness and mercy, David says, will follow me. We're going the wrong way if we're trying to follow good and and mercy. That's a gift of God. That's a gift of God to people who have their lives restored to them. It means, Psalm 23 says, he restores my soul. That means literally in Hebrew, he gives me back my life. The life of every human being is forfeit because of sin. And yet God returns that life to us and then his goodness and mercy follows us all the days of our life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't think any more wonderful words have been written. All my life, God follows me with goodness and mercy, and the Lord, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's rather interesting. Some years ago, in fact, about almost 60 years ago, when I was in college, I was taking a calculus course and, and, uh, and learned about a man by the name of Igor Shavarovich, a Russian mathematician, was an extremely bright fellow, and he had added certain rules to number theory, which is what we were studying. And I learned about this man, and then later on, I read an article of his called The Socialist Phenomenon in a book edited by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And Shavarovich talks about socialism, which is the result of the Enlightenment philosophy that man is the center of everything. And he said, socialism is is always anti-God, anti-family, and anti-private property. And that explains an awful lot about our culture in the United States today. And so we should not be surprised at what's happening. The nations seek depraved liberty from serving Christ the King. God's answer is 
My king is set upon my holy hill of Zion. You don't choose the king. God chooses the king. That's a very fundamental thing to understand. That's stated back in Deuteronomy chapter 14, where it talks about Israel choosing a king. You shall choose a king whom God has chosen. In the Old Testament, God would send a prophet to set his, uh, the, the office of king upon a particular individual. In the New Testament, we are given the responsibility of looking at the qualifications that God gives for the leaders of the church and of society. But anyway, God laughs at man's rebellion. He who sits in the heavens is laughing. The Lord shall hold them in derision. God looks down upon this and says, how dumb is this? To overthrow, to think you can overthrow God? Remember when the disciples were preaching and the Jews were very, very angry and they had a meeting, uh, they had actually punished John and Peter. And then uh, the old uh, teacher Gamaliel came and said, wait a minute, think about what you're doing here. He talks about the movement of the Christians, and he says, if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you should even be found to fight against God. And that's why God laughs in derision. And I think we need to understand that. An awful lot of what's going on in the world is Christ ruling the nations with a rod of iron, as we'll see in just a little bit. Now, this is very interesting in verse 7. In verse 6, it says, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And Jesus, before ascends into heaven, says, all authority on heaven and earth is given unto me. He's the king. That's why we can preach the gospel without embarrassment, knowing that everywhere in the world it will produce fruit. But then in verse 7, we read, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, what's fascinating about that is that in Acts 13, verse 33, that verse is quoted to talk not about Christ's birth, but about his resurrection. He quotes Psalm 2, and he says, God has fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Why is the resurrection of Christ seen as the begetting of the Son? Because it's his begetting as Christ the King. As a reward for his work and as part of the plan of God, Christ is given the rulership of the universe. And that happens at his resurrection. And that is our comfort, that is our guide, and that is why the heathen can't win. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. When does that happen? That's what's going on right now. That's why we read Revelation chapter 19, where Christ the King rides out on a white horse and destroys the nations. And there, Psalm 2 is again quoted. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. Verse 15 of Revelation 19 reads, Out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword, that with it he should smite the nations and should reel them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness 
and wrath of Almighty God. We think of the, the disruption and the violence and all the terrible things that are happening. They're going to get made right when Christ comes again to judge the world. There is justice. But in the meantime, what is going on and what explains the history of the world today is that what Christ has gone out, it's very clear. His name is the Word of God and all of those things. And he rules the nations. Out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. The Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides not only personally in our souls, but it also divides the nations because that Word of God divides the nations into two camps those who submit themselves to Christ and those who fight against him. Now, the wonderful thing is that even if our nation is against Christ, we can be for him. See that? We can live in freedom in our minds. During the 1980s, I got hooked on Russian prison literature. (laughs) And you cannot believe the Christians in the prison camps in Russia. Solzhenitsyn estimates that there were 20 million Christians put in the prison camps in Russia. So it's a a terrible, terrible uh, point in history. And yet at the same time, that's where the real Christians were, many of them, were in the prison camps. Ladies would get a uh, um, 12-year sentence to the prison camps for teaching their children Bible stories. And yet, interestingly, when Brezhnev in the early 1980s was the premier of Russia... The man who was in charge of the religious section, whose purpose was to get rid of Christianity, said in the Politburo, there are still 70 million Christians in Russia out of 210 million people. I wish we had a good percentage. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? There were in Russia still 70 million Christians. And that is explained by the last three verses of our psalm. I I think grace, grace, grace. You look at the world, you look at the rebellion against Christ, you look at the fact that Christ is ruling the nations with a rod of iron, and underlying this whole business is the gospel. Christ invites the nations to kiss their son, to put their trust in, uh, kiss the son, that is, uh, the Christ, and put their trust in him. Christ is not only the king who rules the nations unto the destruction of those who hate him, he is also the king who rules the nation to the salvation of those who wise up. Be wise now, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's an invitation of grace because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's in Psalm 111 and a couple other places, by the way. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. Because his praise endures forever. That's what we want to be very careful about that. In the midst of this uh, psalm, which is uh, so negative in a sense, Christ will break the nations with a rod of iron. There is the invitation to serve the Lord with fear. Along with that goes the invitation to kiss the Son. You can anger him, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way. When he quickly is angry, there's no neutrality with respect to Christ the King. He himself said, he that is not for me is against me. I don't want to be very clear about that. And then finally he says, blessed are all those who seek their refuge or who put their trust in him. 
That's the most amazing thing at all. Blessed means happy. It means filled with good things. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. And it's really quite simple, the gospel, and that brings us back to the Lord's Supper. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him for the dead, you will be saved. The amazing grace is that God calls us to be saved without our effort, but with our simple reception, acceptance of the truth of the gospel. And that, as I said, brings us right back where we started. Salvation through, uh, through faith in Christ, who through the offering of his body and blood, once for all on the cross, has saved us from our sins, which is, of course, what we commemorate in the Lord's Supper. We come first confessing our sins. We come second confessing our faith in Christ for complete salvation. And we come seeking God's grace to strengthen our faith and the ability to live a Christian life as servants of Christ the King. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It is coming to Christ the King, honestly, humbly confessing our sins, seeking his grace for forgiveness, and seeking his grace to strengthen us. Because the Lord's Supper, like the Word of God, is a means of grace. And God uses that in our lives as we contemplate what Christ has done for us to strengthen our ability to be the true servants of God. May the Holy Spirit dwell in our hearts as we together celebrate that supper. Amen.